precious name of Jesus this morning. Good to see everybody that braved the slippery roads. I don't know what they were like. It was a little slippery all the way down uh, First Street there, but it wasn't too bad. Um, I truly enjoy a nice snow. I don't know if you all agree with me, but despite its difficulties and challenges, it is absolutely uh, speaks of God's marvelous design, uh, a, a beautiful snowfall. And I want to praise him for that, praise him that he made beautiful things like snow. Uh, by way of opening, uh, not to do with the message this morning, I, uh, this is the first Sunday of the year, and um, I just want to put a plug in for uh, establishing a, a, a personal devotional life, and, and a good time to do that is at the beginning of the year. I know we're a whole week into it, but it's not too late to start, and if uh, it, just a uh, do you have a plan for a time with the Word of God? I remember as a young Christian, soon after I was born again, my mother came to me and said, Nate, you know, it's important that you spend time in the Word of God, a regular time in the Word of God. And I've always been thankful that I took her advice and started that habit at a young age. Because um, I do think it's valuable that it becomes a habit. Now, habits, uh, hopefully it's more than a habit, but habits are something that goad us on, you know? A little like, did I have my cup of coffee in the morning yet? Did I read my word, the Word of God? And it helps keep us on task. But I trust it becomes much deeper than that, and for me it has. Um, I've tried a number of different uh, things over the years. I remember as a teenager um, doing the book of Proverbs, one chapter a day, go through Proverbs once a month, 12 times a year, and that was, that was meaningful to me, especially for a young man. It's written to young men and uh, had an impact in my life. I believe I did, uh, beside the still waters one year, but probably that has been the most enduring is reading through the Bible in a year's time. And I want to put a plug in that, and just kind of curious, if you're brave enough to raise your hand, how many have read through the Bible once? Okay, and there, then I won't ask how many did not. You don't have to raise your hand. So there's a number of you who have not read through the Bible. And I don't know, you know, what, what your reasons may be. But I think possibly it looks overwhelming um, to get it done. And I, I would like to suggest it is not as overwhelming as it seems when you split it out in 365 days. Um, you, you, um, there's a number of Bible reading plans. There's, in fact, 365-day Bibles that there's, uh, we have some of the, the outlines in the back here. But um, just start. And, uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to wade through the genealogies, and there's a few sections that I don't even enjoy yet. But read through the whole word. And uh, I encourage, while you're there, have a pencil. And when something stands out to you, underline it. And then the next time around, it jumps out at you. And uh, it's a real blessing. It takes a, a, a set time of day. You know, this is my time that I'm going to, and I'm a morning person. Uh, where was Sanford? It, I'm a good morning Lord kind of person, not good Lord, it's morning. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of person you are this morning. So maybe it works better in the evening. There's nothing wrong with it. But I tend to think that morning's the time to get up and spend time in God's word. Well, that's not what the sermon was about. I just felt burdened to get all that off and challenge us here at the beginning of the year. 
to set that. The entrance of that word giveth light. And it has an impact on our lives. And it makes a difference when we get into it regularly. It really does. Get into it. Read it. And let it change your lives. Because it will. It doesn't, it's powerful. It's quick. It's alive. It's, it's different than any other book that you have read. Okay, return with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. So Romans 10, I would like to say it was uh, quite um, concise, in many ways very enjoyable to study and to preach. Romans 11, I've enjoyed to study. I pray that God would give me the wisdom to, to relay the things that I've learned to you in ways that make sense. There are a few hard concepts in here, like a, the remnant, uh, the election of, of grace, that I hope I can didn't feel they were as complicated once I studied into them, but I hope I can share them clearly as well. But I want to start at the back of the chapter in verse 33 to provide the, concept, the context, I believe, that we should look at the rest of the chapter. Verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, who hath been his counselor, who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I'll read that context to just remind us as we dig into the text here that we're looking into some of the things that God has done with both us and the Jews and some of his plans for the future. And that we certainly cannot, will not understand it all because God's ways are so much higher and bigger. And hopefully instead of trying to say we have understood it all, it would bring us to a place of worship a place of awe and adoration for the things that God has done and continues to do. The title of the message this morning is Israel's Future and God's Faithfulness. Israel's Future and God's Faithfulness. Let's start in the first ten verses looking at a remnant according to the election of grace. Start reading Romans chapter 11 verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tri tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not that what the scripture has saith of Elias, how he made intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and digged down thy altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is, is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it, be no, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it. And the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David said, 
Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling blocks and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. So Paul starts uh, this question, which he had said before, I believe in chapter 9, Hath God, is God done with Israel? Has he thrown them away? He's finished with them. And he answers, God forbid, he's not done. Indeed, he says, I am an Israelite. I'm Paul speaking to you, a Jew. And he's not done with me. He picked me out and, and I'm born again. I'm, I'm part of the church. So no, God is not done with Israel. He hasn't cast them away. He knew and foreknew. I want to, uh, and he uses this example of Elijah, his prayer, and we're going to dig into that a little bit, but I want to first provide a little bit more of the context and the election of grace. It says, even so then at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So a remnant, what's a remnant? Take a, somebody cutting a dress out and they have a piece of material, there's remnants left over, a small part of the original piece. And Paul's saying there is this remnant, and he's a part of the remnant. But when you look at the nation of whole, the ones who followed and believed in Jesus Christ were but a small number. And he says it is according to the election of grace. What is this election? Like chosen, elected, picked out by God's grace. Not according to their works, but according to God's grace. And then he goes further to say that those that were not chosen were blinded. And he ends up in this kind of harsh prophecy of David that they would be darkened. And you read that and it, it just does something inside of me like, well, is God partial? Is this partiality? Is this a choosing among? And it kind of raises these questions about um, what God is doing and, and his sovereignty and, and his fairness. Um, and maybe we, without outside of this context, we can look around life around us and consider how blessed we are with the knowledge we've been given. And you wonder, is what about the people that haven't heard? And, and you start thinking about how this all works and how, how's that right? How's that work? I hope I can satisfy. I believe there is a, a, I believe this chapter actually brings glory to God when we can see the beauty of his work. I hope and trust God will help me to do that. But first we're going to, Bounce back to 1 Kings chapter 19. And consider the story of Elijah, which Paul quotes here. This is a familiar story. Remember, Elijah's running for his life after the um, mountaintop experience of um, the fire on the altar. But it, all of a sudden, he realizes that Jezebel's going to kill him. He runs for his life. God's by his strength, takes him all the way out into the wilderness. He finds a cave. You could call and, and observe that Elijah's like a depressed man here. He's, he just he came from the mountain and he's, he hit rock bottom. He just didn't, he wanted to die. And uh, God comes and works with Elijah. He wasn't finished with Elijah. 
He's in this cave, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel hath forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And I believe he was being very honest with God that he just felt alone in the end. And he felt it was the end of righteousness in the, in the kingdom of Israel. And remember, this is the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had gone far from God. They were, they were very uh, worshiping idols, worshiping uh, the Queen Jezebel was in charge. He was a wicked, wicked person. Uh, the Baal was being lifted up as the official religion. Just awful things were happening. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mountain before the Lord. He says, step, step outside your cave. And he stands and stands in the doorway outside his cave and says, Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break the pieces in pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. When thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Jehu the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. So God deals with Elijah. And in his view, and, and he opens up his mind and says, Elijah, I'm not done with you. Your life is not at an end. In fact, I still have an important work for you to do. That's the first thing he says. You need to go, and you need to anoint these three men. These three men are going to take um, leadership. Elisha's going to take your place. Jehu's going to take Ahab's place. And Hazael's going to take Ben-Hadad's place in, in Syria. And then he says, but you were also wrong about your view of what's actually happened in Israel. You don't know about all the faithful men that you can't see, but there are 7,000 of them that have not given their allegiance to Baal. They have not given worship to him. They have not compromised. They're faithful to me, and I know them. There is a remnant. There's a faithful remnant. So Elijah goes. He, he obeys God, and he goes down the road, and meets Elisha. Elisha follows him. And then the story takes kind of a twist. When you read the text here, it looks like he's going to anoint those three men. Bang, bang, bang. And it's going to be over. But that's not what happens. Um, Elisha goes, I don't know how many years, and Elijah dies, or he's taken up in the whirlwind. And Elisha, Elisha takes over, and then there's a number of miracles that happen. There's, I believe, the um, Naaman is killed like Ahab sins some more. Jezebel continues to be wicked. Time elapses until finally one day Elisha says to a servant of his, go today and anoint Jehu. And 
Jehu's anointed, and Haziel comes to him as a direction from his king, Ben-Hadad, said Ben-Hadad is sick, and he says, yeah, Ben-Hadad is going to recover, but he looks at Haziel and says, Haziel, and Haziel's like, why are you doing that? And he says, well, I see you're going to kill all these Israelites. He says, why would I do that? And Haziel leaves and goes back to his king and takes a wet rag, and he says, what did Elisha say? He said, you're going to recover, and then he takes a wet rag over his face and suffocates him, kills him, and takes over. So now Haziel is king of Assyria, Elisha is prophet, and Jehu is king of Israel. And then all things start just happening. Like Jehu starts killing the house of Ahab and Jezebel, and Haziel starts oppressing the Israelites. And why do I say all of that? Because when we are watching like Elijah, God's doings, we say, God, why are you doing things the way you are? Why does it take so long? And why didn't you do them in this order? Because when I read the text, it should all happen like that, but it didn't. And I wondered, did Elijah disobey? No, I believe that is how God works. And we don't always understand God's ways. And that's okay. We need to step back and believe him. But the ultimate, the end thing is that we have a job to do. God says, you don't need to understand all my ways. You don't need to figure it all out. But you do need to be obedient to the task that I lay before you. I have a task that's within your means. Go do it. I will take care of the things that you don't understand. Let's go back to uh, Romans chapter 11 and consider this election of grace. Adam Clark is the, the one I was kind of surprised because I didn't think he would necessarily come out here. But this is what he wrote. He said, The election of grace simply signifies God's gracious design in sending the Christian system into the world and saving under it all those who believe in Christ Jesus and none else. Thus, the believers in Christ are chosen to inherit the blessings of the gospel, while those who seek justification by, by the works of the law are rejected. God's grace was revealed through Jesus Christ to the whole world. He sent forth his Son and the gospel to all. Let's not forget that. He is not willing that any should perish. And that, that chapter 10, the way to salvation is being put forth to all. There are none that say, well, God, that message is not for you. That's not how it is. The message of grace is for all. So what is with this election? What is with this remnant and I had to go, my mind went to John chapter 3. Let's turn to John chapter 3 and think about that old, old story of, of, of Jesus' own testimony of the gospel. Verses 15 to 21, he said that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whosoever, anybody that believes in Jesus Christ, has the opportunity to, to have eternal life. For God so loved the Jews, no, the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The world, everybody. He that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth. So the person that believeth of the whosoever is not condemned. 
But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds would, should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And I love the last three verses there, 18-21, that of the picture of God's light coming into the world, his grace coming forth like shining into the world, into the darkness, into the sin, and revealing the truth about God, revealing the way to heaven. That light is not um, for only some. That light is for all. It is whosoever. So what is with this election and the remnant? What is Paul getting at? So let's say we had a light here, and I thought about it, and I pulled on the blinds and bringing a light in, and a spotlight, and I shine it over the congregation, and or maybe shine it down the aisle here. I wasn't always sure which, what the best, but you all would see the light. And let's say this is a special light that when you stepped into it, like a screen would light on your chest and it would start listing all the problems you have. It would reveal. It would be a revealing light. And that's what God's light does. It shines on us and it, it burns into the inner core of who we are. And what it's saying in verses 18 to 21 is that revealing is painful. When we come to the light, we need to say, I, this is who I am, and this is the failures I have. And we don't like to do that. Our human nature um, pulls away from that. And there are those who are busy in the work of darkness, and that light falls upon them, and it starts revealing the wickedness they're in. And they, they move into the darkness, away from the light, because they don't want the light to reveal their sin. There are those who are sick of their sin and they see the light and they see the hope that is offered through Jesus Christ and they come to the light. Yes, knowing that it will reveal the, the wretchedness inside of them, the sin inside of them, but they come because they see the hope and the salvation that's offered in the light. Those who come to the light receive more light. Those who Stay in darkness and choose darkness, receive more darkness. So if you go back to the election, it is still according to human choice. That grace is free to all. But then when, if we, the, the, the warning here is of those who turn their back against that light and go into darkness and, and against God. And, and he's saying how serious that is to shun the grace of God and that the beauty of salvation and how that we can become in bondage to the darkness. Now we'll go, as we go through the chapter, we'll realize that this is not necessarily a once and done situation. You almost get feeling like, you know, you miss it once, you're done. You know, you won't have a chance to get back. Like the Jews missed it once, rejected Christ once and it's over. No, that's not what he's saying. And he'll repeat that as we go down through the chapter. So we think of a remnant, I think sometimes we become discouraged both within the church and outside of the church at the, the problems and the spiritual apathy um, 
people not following God. And at times, maybe we can feel like Elijah. There's just nothing good happening anymore. But I think what was true in that day is true today, that God is doing a work that we do not even grasp. He has a remnant throughout the world. He is doing a work, and he is drawing men to them himself, and there are men and women who are believing in Jesus Christ, and they are becoming a part of that elect, that election, that remnant, that God's work that he is doing in this world. Now we're going to go into the next section, verses 11 to 24, and he's going to bring a different uh, picture, that of a tree and of grafting. And I say, then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partaking of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root bearest thee. Thou wilt say then... The branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And now standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. On them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these which be the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? We're looking at uh, I'm going to title this, Behold the Goodness and the Severity of God. And we're considering God's dealing both with the Jews and the Gentiles, both his grace and his judgments. So we think about the whole history of the nation of Israel and how, um, you know, all we could just go on and on of God's dealings with the nation of Israel and, and it culminating in their rejection of the Messiah of Jesus. And then that rejection, how they persecuted the early church. Yes, there were a remnant of Jews that followed Jesus, but there were most that did not. And as a, as a religion as a whole, they rejected him. But that rejection became a blessing as the gospel turned from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we can read that in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And that blessing, that rejection became a blessing to you and I. Because we were given the gospel. It was not like before where God's focus was on one nation. And if you were outside of that, it was difficult or not even really welcome to become a part of that. Now it says, no, Jews suddenly started realizing like Peter that, oh, God wants the gospel to go to the whole world. And that was quite a thing to get through, but they did it. 
And Paul, the, the apostle of Gentiles, starts taking this to the Gentiles, and the Gentile church starts exploding. Now soon there are many more Gentile Christians. Well, as difficult as it might be today, can you imagine being back there? The Jews are hating Jesus. They're, they're hating the followers of Jesus. And how do you look at a Jew? How do you view him? Do you, do you say, well, he's wrong? Well, yeah, in a way he is. Do you hate him? Do you like him? Do you pray for him? Paul's trying to work at us getting a proper view of the Jew. And meanwhile, he's getting a lot else done. He's getting a proper view of God and a proper view of ourselves. He asks the question, does this mean there's no hope for the Jew? Have they stumbled that they should fall, in meaning fall permanently, like they're done? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Yes, they did stumble, they did fall, they did disobey. <coughs> but God is using that disobedience, that falling, for riches to the Gentile Christians. And then Paul says something that he says, uses the word jealousy. He's saying he's hoping, as the Jews will see the work that's done in the Gentile church and all these um, heathens, really, pagans, turning from idols and turning to their God, worshiping the Messiah, and see the transformation of, in people that used to live very wicked lives, that it would catch their attention and it would provoke jealousy within them. And they would say, well, we want some of this too. That's his hope. And you have to kind of follow Paul's reasoning as he um, kind of takes this. And he says, that's one of the reasons I kind of brag about my ministry to the Gentiles, because I want to shake things up. And if you read the book of Acts and you follow Paul, that's what he would do. He'd go in and he'd talk to the synagogues and they would, after other Jews would quit listening, and he'd write right over to the Gentiles. And pretty soon... And it would happen over and over again. The Jews would get jealous and they would get, and they'd chase Paul out. And they didn't like the attention that he would get from the Gentiles. And it was just a mess. But in it all, beneath it all, Paul was not wishing to get rid of his Jewish, but he loved them. He desired that they too would be saved. He says, now, we think about, they were put away and they, they rejected Christ. And it was, then the Gentiles received him. He said, what would happen if God used their rejection so powerfully to take the gospel of the Gentiles, what would happen if the Jews would be saved? And then what would be? And he was getting excited about that, if they would receive Jesus as Lord. And he goes in verses 16 to 24, and he takes these two trees, and we think of an olive tree. We think of a cultivated olive tree, one that was uh, bred for uh, olive production. It was taken care of. It's in a grove. And then we have one over here in the woods that just kind of came up on its own, and it's wild. And he said, this olive tree, its roots are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs, and the, and the 12 tribes, and this is God's olive tree. It's a special olive tree. And this one here is just the Gentiles, and it's a wild one, and it's out of God's vineyard. Well, uh, the Jews, they didn't follow God, and finally God took some of those branches, and he broke them off. And then... The gospel came and the Gentiles responded to it by faith and God took some of those branches and he, um, I'm not familiar with grafting, he made a little slit and he stuck the branches in a graft that didn't grew together. And now, branch, you're the Gentile branch on this Jewish olive tree and you're getting your source and energy from, from the word of God, which was grounded in the Jewish nation. 
That's a picture he's saying. He says, now, think about that. Think about who you are. That you are just simply a wild olive branch being grafted into the Jewish thing. And you start having an attitude toward the Jews that, well, they're the ones that rejected Jesus. And they're the ones that disobeyed and really don't have any time for them. And by think about yourself. You don't even have as much to say that they do. You're just this branch that's been in your getting born up by the word of God, which is based in the Jews. Be careful. If you become high-minded and trust in your own selves and reject God's ways, he can just as easily go and snap you off and throw you back like he did the, the Jews. See, God was really good in allowing to make an opening to bring you into his plan. But don't become arrogant. Be careful. God could take you right off again. Or he could, if the, the Jews realize what they have done wrong and repent and believe, he could take them back up. And how easy would it be for him to put them right back into the tree they came from? I struggled saying this. You know, this, this Paul, he's just, just going all over the place. But what's he doing? What's he trying to get to? Behold God. What is God doing? What was God doing? What is God doing today in the nation of Israel, in the church at Milmont, in my life, in your life? God uses events, even our own decisions, to draw us to him, to help us. But he says, beware. Don't take God's goodness for granted. Don't mock it. When there's a light shines into your life, respond to it. Because God is able to also shut the door and break off as good as he is able to graft in. <clears throat> Let's go to the section, verses 25 to 33, and look at a a promise and a mystery. All Israel shall be saved. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, and that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there cometh out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in time past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have they also not believed that through your mercy that they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Paul says some things in here that just make you shake your head. What is coming yet? He first warns us that we shouldn't be ignorant or we shouldn't be conceited. And unfortunately, these very things have happened to the Christian church through the ages. That we have become ignorant and conceited, particularly in our attitude toward the Jew. Much persecution has happened to the Jew from Christians. 
from people who profess the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a saying in the Middle Ages and up through, they called the Jew the Christ killer. And they said, well, they, you know, they were right. They did, or the ones that brought him when you read the Bible. But there was a lack of understanding and knowing that Jesus was a Jew. And although they killed him, they killed one of their own. And to see the bigger picture of God's plan through the Jews and through Jesus Christ. The beginning of the chapter, is God done with the Jew? No, he is not. Is God done with the Jew today? No, he's not. And I don't know and I don't understand what all is going to happen, but these are some of the verses that reveal that all Israel will be saved. And there's coming a deliverer that will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And I'm not in depth enough to understand quite what all Revelation is saying in those last few years of the, of the great um, wranglings that are going to happen in Israel or are happening for all I know. But there's a promise that, that the Jews who have consistently, if you read history, have rejected the Messiah as a whole to this day. There's never been that I'm aware of a time in Jewish history from the time of Christ till now where the Jewish nation would have come to Christ in a large-scale event. I believe that is what this is describing, that there would come a time yet where instead of being stuck on their law and things that they feel they need to do, that they would come a time where they would say, oh, we've been wrong about Jesus. He is our Messiah. And they would turn to him, maybe not all of them, but a large portion of them, where the nation would turn back to God in a revival. The state, the... the, the, the um, by my understanding, the religious state of a modern-day Jew is not very good. There are some who are very religious in that they would, you look at them and they're very, uh, I don't know if you study, I think it's Hasidic Jews and they are black clothes and have little fringes and all, they really look different. But the nominal Jew, which includes the majority of them, are not very believing. And there's numbers of them that don't believe in God at all. They have lost their faith in their, their relationship with God. But that's not a permanent state, the Bible says. There is something that is coming. There's a difference and a change, a deliverer coming. God is going to do a work for the Jew. And I think in a way that will, will just be amazing. Just as he has done a work in us, among the Gentiles, among his people. He says, God's covenant, remember God's covenant with Abraham, it still stands. They are beloved for their father's sake. See, God hasn't forgotten that. His covenant is still real. It's still happening. Because God is reliable in his promises and in his workings with people. Paul has taken in this chapter us to places that I don't fully understand. But it was interesting as I gathered in him trying to attempt to explain. And if he would have ended this chapter with saying, okay, now I told you, get it, don't ask me again. It would have been, I, I would have been. But he ends the chapter very differently, which I read it already. I'm going to read it again. <clears throat> oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? 
Or who hath given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That is our God, and that is what we need to believe in by faith. I confess that sometimes I've thought about the, the history of recorded in the Bible and how God took uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and took them down to Egypt and he gave them the law, took them through the wilderness. And he goes on and on and he finally gets them in the promised land and they rebel and they sin. They're taken back to Babylon and to Assyria. And then they finally come back from Babylon and then it goes another 400 years till the Messiah comes. And I say, God, maybe, maybe another way it would have been better. Maybe you could have sent Jesus right after the flood. Maybe the Jews, you could have picked a more pliable people. But this is where we need to end up at. That we do not understand why God did all the things that he did in the times that he did it. But I believe because he is God, he did it for a reason. And, and, and his ways are, they're good. That needs to be our foundation. And I think that's what Paul was trying to do in chapter 11. Is don't you understand that contrary to the feeling you get back in verse 5, that God is kind of fickle and picking out his favorites. Like, if you're his favorite, lucky you. If you're not, poor you. No. Rather, God has been putting forth his full effort into working with both the Jews and Gentiles to draw all men to him. And we, in our limited understanding, have no idea of the cosmic nature of the battle of spiritual warfare that is happening behind the scene for the battle of your heart and mine. God is in the middle of that. He is moving time and events and ages to accomplish his will. And he will be victorious in the end. But in the middle of his great moving, he has chosen that each one of us has a choice to make, has a response to make to his workings. He will do his part in ways that I don't understand. But each of us will come to a time and place where we have a decision to make. Are we going to believe him and say, yes, you do know what you're doing, and follow him? Or are we going to say, you know, I'd rather go my own way. I'd rather do my own thing. And he has deemed that if we choose that, he allows it to our own peril. But even though he may allow it once, as we see in this chapter, he doesn't give up. Oh, his mercy is great and everlasting. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for the word of God. Lord, I pray that you would reveal the truths that you may have here in ways that I cannot. Oh, Father, if there's any misunderstanding, I just pray that that could be clarified. Because I do not want to diminish your glory, your beauty, your wisdom. It is great, far beyond my simple understanding. Thank you that you've shown the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into my heart, into the heart of this congregation. Thank you for the opportunity and the ability to respond to that gospel and to enter into the family of God. Thank you for your continued grace 
that works in each one of our lives. Oh God, I pray you would fill us with a desire to take that good news to all people that they too could respond and receive and become a part of. Lord, I pray you bless us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.